So I need a, a volunteer, uh, somebody to be Adam for me. Okay, Ronnie, uh, if you would go hide behind that pole and take your clothes off. Okay, all right, no, no, no. <laughs> all right, so, so, all right, so, so here's, here's a couple things about the, <laughs> here's a couple things about the gospel. We have a choice as to what we believe the problem is that, that Jesus came to fix. And um, so if, if, if I could be permitted to play God, and Ronnie is Adam, and you can envision Ronnie with his clothes off, hiding. <laughs> There's something about that kind of transparent exposure that was too much for Adam. And, and uh, if you remember in the original uh, story, God came at the appointed time, was going to walk in fellowship with Adam and Eve again, and, uh, and, uh, and, and Adam wasn't to be found. And so um, God said, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? You're hiding. Yeah. Why? You were naked and you were ashamed, right? Ashamed? Who told you you were naked? That question didn't actually get answered. You know, that's an interesting deal. Uh, and so, all right, so Ronnie's back there. Now, come on out. Come on out. And then Ronnie said, no, no, no. Just, just You're still playing the role. All right, so Ronnie's still, still playing Adam there. And the issue that we're dealing with is that he was afraid. And that fear caused him to withdraw. Now, a lot of times we don't think about this, but there was no reason for him to be afraid. Fear was something that had to be manufactured for the first time. Because Adam wasn't living in a world where there were hurricanes that destroyed the cities that got attributed as acts of God and all that kind of stuff. So fear was something that began to grow up inside of him independent. And so we have lived most of our life under a gospel where, uh, did you eat the, the fruit of the tree? Yeah, you did. <laughs> you lied. That woman you gave me. All right, so this is the whole situation. So we, we, have, we have tried to share, we've tried to embrace, we've tried to be transformed by a gospel that was based upon him offending me by breaking a command that I gave him, right? And so Jesus was sent and eventually had to go to the cross to atone for or to, I don't want to steal your thing, but, you know, the, the Greek idea of propitiation where there's an offended king going to take over your city and you've got to send a, ch a chest of gold and a bunch of virgins out to him so that you can appease his offense. That's the nature of the gospel. So basically the story between me and Adam is that I'm offended that he ate and did the thing I told him not to do. But the reality of the fact is there's another problem, and the problem is more revealed in what Adam did than in what he did. The did that's important is he hid. Well, I got to move around. Okay. So, yeah, I don't either. Uh, we just pulled the uh, 
wireless box up out of the nest of wires behind the board and put it on a shelf by itself, so now it doesn't work. Uh, who's to say? So anyway, here's the point I want to make, and I want to get distracted. Um, the problem that has to be solved is his hiding and the way he sees me. Because now he sees me as someone to fear and someone who's going to punish him for what he did. Even though that was never a dynamic. Even the declaration, hey bud, even the declaration that uh, the day you eat of it, you'll die, wasn't a punishment. It was a record of a fact. So here's the problem that has to be solved with the gospel. There's Adam hiding. I've encouraged him to come out, but the minute I take a step forward, he goes back into hiding. So the very thing that I want to do as God, which is restore this relationship that has been falsely broken and blinded, my presence inhibits happening. As a good father, I step forward, but he doesn't see me as a good father anymore. And so the nature of the gospel is we've come to understand it. Okay, Ronnie, you can sit down now. <laughs> For real. <laughs> is, is that the reason Jesus came was so that I didn't have, so that the people who were hiding, the people who had painted my face with an ugly brush, didn't have to deal directly with me because they were incapable of doing so. And you can get reinforced with the fact that they were incapable of doing so, at, uh, at, at, the, at Mount Sinai, when the children of Israel were being invited into the presence of the Lord, and they said, no, 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 it's too frightening. We want you to talk to Moses. And Moses was capable of playing an intermediary, but he wasn't capable of being a mediator. He was, you know, and, and Hebrews talks all about that, that Moses was good over his whole house, but not the same as Jesus. So now, his tendency to hide doesn't have to be broken by overcoming the impossible distortion and fear between Adam and God, or even between Ronnie and God. But now Jesus came, and he became one of us, right? And as one of us, two things happened. We saw who we were instead of seeing that shameful image that we had in the past. And the second thing is that Ronnie can look to me and, and say something like, uh, uh, who was it? Was it Thomas that said, where are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. In other words, there could be a bond created on a human level. Or if you remember in the shack, if you remember in the shack, Max sat out there with Jesus and said, it's just so much easier to relate to you well, that's because I'm a man, <laughs> you know, I'm a man. And so this impossible barrier, this impossible barrier, made impossible by us totally, by our blindness, by tarring God with the feather of a or the, the, the uh, color of a judge and a punisher, God came and was in the midst of us in Jesus. And that tells you what the problem was that needs to be restored. It's not that we violated a command and we need a, a lawyer to fix us. It is that we broke off our relationship and made it impossible for God to approach us without us recoiling. So Jesus found his way to the last recoil, the way I like thinking about it. When he's standing there in the Kidron Valley and that, that plethora of soldiers and, and religious people and the betrayer of his own family, 
When they said, he said, who do you seek? And he said, Jesus of Nazareth. They fell backwards. And this was the final choice that Jesus made to get into the midst of that. Instead of taking that opportunity to escape, which was never his intent, he stepped right into the middle of it. He continued to come forward until they were no longer able to get away, and he got them up and submitted to them. So he found the core of why Adam hid, and he found the core of why the children of Israel would not come to God. And so the gospel is waking up to the fact that we have never been alone, and we have never been the object of God's punishment. We have always always, according to Ephesians and Paul, been predestined out of love to the adoption of sons. Okay, one quick one right there. Since you got up and took your clothes off, you have a right to one question. Are we on? Yes. Recently I was asked, well, then why did Jesus come? Yes. By, by believers when I tell them... In other words, I, if it's not punishment or hell or de- yeah, judgment yeah. or something. Yeah. So I think a good simple answer is to restore a relationship He did. He came, himself. He came to make it possible for us to enter into a sto- restored relationship because we still had God off in outer space as a judge and as... Yeah. So anyway, all right. So now what I want to do is I... I I got, I'm going to have to move on to, to Benji. What I want to do is I want to bring Benji Alexander up here because uh, I've just met Benji recently, but I've heard a lot about him through Nancy, and he is going to uh, share his heart for the Father with us, and uh, I will help you technically however I can do it. Benji Alexander from New Zealand. What, what town in New Zealand, buddy? All right, so here you go. I'll let you introduce yourself. Good morning. How are you guys doing? It's a real delight for me to be here with you this morning. Uh, Sundays, it's a good effort to get out of bed and come to church on a Sunday. We drove an hour to church. How far did you guys drive? 45 minutes? An hour? 15 minutes? Is anyone close enough to walk? No? Almost? All right, hey, well, it's a real delight and an honor for me to be here with you this morning, and uh, so, as all Larry guys, said, all these guys only want so win a minute or two. Those are our Zoom people. You guys have to keep me. So those guys there are they watching? But they're watching by Zoom. Hi guys, I'm looking at you there, but I'm you're over there. But hi, hello. It's wonderful to be with you as well, and Robin. Good to, good to be with you this morning. We've been staying out with Robin and the girls and Nancy and Bob and Shannon and James and all the Bates family as well. So we've had a great time. I've been in America about three weeks now. I've got another week left going to Missouri today with Nancy. And I'm also here with uh, Ali, who is part of the tribe from New Zealand. And uh, it's great to be here this morning. But I'll, just to start, I really want to honour... Larry, what a delight. This guy's amazing. Can we just give Larry a hand? Um, so enjoyed meeting Larry a couple of times in the last week and having some really good uh, fellowship time and just connecting and hearing his heart. And oh my goodness, what a, like, here's something that to me is outstanding about Larry uh, as a leader, because I get to, in my role, I get to spend a lot of time with pastors and, and Christian leaders. Something outstanding about Larry is that he's actually secure. <laughs> He's really, really secure, which means that, that he's really relaxed about 
having conversations about anything. He'll chat about anything, and he's not going to get stressed out. He's not, he doesn't get angry. He doesn't get insecure. That results in all sorts of uh, emotional dysfunctions presenting. So can we just give Larry a hand, because I really appreciate that. It's a real delight. And... I want to say that the hospitality in Colorado has been amazing. Actually, everywhere I've been in, in the state so far has been fantastic hospitality. Uh, but Bob and Nancy, you guys have spoilt me and spoilt Ali, and it's been amazing. So can you give them a hand? Uh, Nancy wanted to have her revenge on me, though, because when she comes to New Zealand, I often uh, play tricks on her. And so one trick that I kind of played on her is... As often as possible. Uh, and sometimes I create the opportunity. So she got off the plane, and I gave her a big meal, fed her, and so she was well fed. And then I drove down the road and stopped, and she was like, where are we going? And I took her bungee jumping. <laughs> uh, so anyway, she cooked me an enormous breakfast, and then told me that I was going to do the Manitou incline. <laughs> so she dropped me at the bottom and they went off and had coffee and had fun. So if you notice that I'm like, eh, eh, straggling, it's because on Friday I did the incline, which was a lot of fun. So I got up at about an hour and then I ran down about 20 minutes. My legs like, oh. So um, if you notice that I'm kind of struggling, it's not like a thing like that from the past, it's the, the incline. So well, I'm going to be fine. <laughs> Um, now, I'm married. My wife is Alana. We have three kids, Ezra, Zoe, and Alia, and I'm going to show you a photo of my beautiful family soon. Uh, I'm going to show you guys a video to start with um, of one of our students in, uh, in Tiano in New Zealand. I do a range of different things. I'm an associate pastor at a church there, and we live in the mountains in the middle of nowhere. Uh, which is really extremely beautiful, and you'll see, actually, in the video, you'll see the kind of uh, landscape of where we live. You'll love it. And then you will also, uh, I also lead a ministry training school called Revival School in New Zealand, which is a lot of fun, and we do a bunch of missions and things like that, and we're all about revealing the Father, raising up sons, and bringing heaven to earth, and establishing authentic expressions of heaven on earth. So it looks like communities that really reflect the culture uh, of heaven and the nature of the Father. So, hey, I'm just going to pray. Uh, that is my family. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you're tangibly among us right now. Trinity, we thank you that you're more real than the air we breathe. Trinity, we thank you that right now we are as in as in can be. We thank you that right now we are as one as one can be. And we thank you that right now we are as loved as loved can be. And I thank you for opening our hearts in a beautiful way this morning to receive your heart for us this morning. To receive, uh, to step into, to experience, to participate in that oneness that we have in you, in that divine union and divine life and divine fellowship that we have with you. We welcome you to open our hearts and open our minds and open doorways that we can step into to experience in the fullness the divine life that you have invited us into. I thank you for every single person here. I thank you for their hunger. I thank you for 
Lord, I thank you for them being here this morning. And I thank you that you have something of great value for every single person this morning. So, Holy Spirit, I thank you that you take the words spoken this morning and that you infuse them with the sound, with the message, with the heart, with the essence and the substance that you want to impart to each person this morning. That as the words come out of my mouth, it'll be like many arrows hitting their targets uh, as you lead and guide those words in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Fantastic. Forward and back. Forward and back. All right. Forward. Point it. Do I have to point at anything? Forward. (laughs) Forward. Back. Back. All right. Going on to my next slide. (laughs) That's all right. For now, uh, this is my beautiful family. So this is Alana. Uh, she's really hot, and I married her, and I like it. Uh, this is Ezra. He is six, going seven in November. This is Zoe. She is four, going five in October. And this is Alia, and she's just turned two. And we are a lively, dynamic, fun, silly family. We, um, my daughters have both, both promised me a beating when I get home. They're like, we're going to give you a beating. We love <coughs> wrestling. We love crazy fun. We love silliness. We love dancing. And uh, I love my family. It's just uh, richer and richer every day. And it's such a beautiful adventure with these guys. So, ta-da, my family. Lovely to be here. Oh, ta-da, ta-da, right. This is this is our message. I thought I'd get into the Colorado vibe. You guys would probably know what that is. That's a peacemaker. I'm surprised I haven't seen anyone in a Western movie uh, calling their, their peacemaker like the son of God. Because blessed are the peacemakers, well, they shall be called sons of God. I, th- I reckon that would be a kind of a cool moment in a Western movie, like, who are they? These are the sons of God. <laughs> and blow everyone away. Because blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And that's what I want to chat about this morning. Um, I'm going to drag this. Now, what, what ideas have we come up with for, for moving through the PowerPoint? Uh, this, this will get a charge in one minute. Oh, yeah. And okay. I will, will be ready, I hope. <clears throat> but uh, I, I'm going to be your helper. Okay, well, well, we'll leave it for there for the moment, because that just kind of looks good, doesn't it? It, does. it looks good. It's a good-looking gun. Is there anyone here by the name of Irene? Irene. Irene? Hi, Irene. Good to meet you. <laughs> Well, Irene, uh, Irene became quite popular in Christian circles because it's actually a Greek word, and it's the Greek word. Anyone know what Greek word Irene? It's Irenus. No. My name is Erin, which is close. Very close. In fact, Irene is spelt with an e. It's E I R E N E. So Erin's a very close derivative of that, and it does mean peace, but it means way more than peace. Uh, which is very good, because we often say, like with the Hebrew word, shalom, right, gets translated as peace. Um, but that, what I like about that is that it's a great understatement. And I like things, I like it when people, uh, they promise a little, but they way over deliver. And it's disappointing when someone uh, over promises and under delivers. You're like, oh, but the word shalom is one of those words which it's just kind of, you know, let's just peace, but it's, it way over delivers in its actual meaning. So is there a way to flick through to the next one? Mm-hmm. Well, I can absolutely do it. Just for a second. All right. Well, you don't need to 
rush too much. So this next one, there we go. Ta-da, shalom. So this is the Hebrew pictogram for the word shalom. Now brace yourselves because in a minute, after I've kind of done this little intro, I'm going um, to have to divide you guys up a little bit and we're going to get a little bit interactive, okay? But for now, uh, shalom. So this is the Hebrew pictogram. Remember reading uh, what the Hebrews? Right to left. Okay, great. Well, we don't, need it. we don't need it to go for a little while, so I'll call you up if we get there. For now, for now we're okay. We're just going to pause on this for a bit. But uh, that is strong teeth, right? Strong teeth, which means to destroy. That's a shepherd's staff, which means authority. A tent peg, which means to attach. And water, which represents chaos. So the, the root meaning, the, the meaning of the word shalom is to destroy the authority attached to chaos. That's a good... That's a good meaning, eh? To destroy the authority attached to chaos. So that's one of the core meanings of your name, Aaron or Irene, um, because the Greek word that's always used to translate shalom is Irene. So there you go. When you see peace in the New Testament, like when you see Jesus and he says, blessed are the peacemakers, um, it's... It's the word Irene there as well. So it's the shalom. So what are the peacemakers? It's the people who destroy the authority attached to chaos. How good is that? Now, one of the things that we learn that, that Jesus has given us a good, uh, good benchmark to work, work from is he said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So truth, in terms of, the, in terms of spiritual currency, if you want uh, freedom... The currency is truth. The currency is revelation. So if you want to destroy chaos and destroy darkness, the weapon that we use is truth or revelation. So that's our, that's our weapon, which is exciting. And we use <coughs> the weapon of truth to destroy chaos. So, what would, so that kind of means that, this, that Jesus used that as well. He used this weapon of truth or revelation. When he came into the world, he came with, like Larry was talking about, I love what you shared, how you opened up. I'm really in the same vein of thought uh, on where you're tracking with that. Jesus, he had two big problems that he was trying to resolve for people. One, the number one thing that Jesus' ministry focused on, which he talked about more than anything else, was the Father. He actually talked about the topic of Father 213 times. And the next most uh, popular topic that he talked about was the Kingdom, which he only talked about 109 times. So the topic of Father exceeded anything else by far. So he brought this revelation. The number one revelation that Jesus came to bring was a revelation of the Father. You see this in Jesus' language all the time. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father and I are one. Excellent. Yeah. And so that's all the way through his, his ministry, over 200, 213 references to the Father. And it's because he knows that the truth will set us free. He's using, this, um, he's using a revelation of the Father to destroy chaos. And that's the weapons of our warfare is truth, is revelation. And here's what I think. I think I love signs, wonders, and miracles. I've seen hundreds and hundreds of, of healings and things like that that I, that I love. But for me, the thing that has the most... <coughs> weight in terms of spiritual authority is what actually produced the greater revelation of the nature of the Father for someone. That's what I'm wanting. Like if, I, if we're seeing miracles and we're seeing beautiful things like that happen, the weight, the substance, the real power in it is what's actually been able to produce in someone an actual revelation of who the Father is, which destroys the chaos. 
Because it's actually to destroy the chaos in a mind and a heart, the miracle won't do that. But the revelation attached to the miracle, which reveals an accurate reflection of who the Father is, that will destroy the chaos on the inside. So what happens when we destroy the chaos? When the chaos is destroyed and we actually get to the the place of Shalom, here's what the place of Shalom looks like. Get ready because this is really good. Shalom Shalom is not just to destroy the authority attached to chaos for no reason. It's to bring everything to an actual point, and that point that Shalom actually comes to, what, which the thing that Shalom actually looks like when it's fully manifest, is Shalom looks like everything functioning according to divine design. So that's how you can tell that there's chaos that needs to be destroyed, is if anything is out of alignment with perfect divine design in any way, then we've got work to do to destroy the chaos. And the chaos is always founded on a lie. Chaos is always founded on a lie. If you want to set someone free, you, br- you can bring that, produce that revelation of who the Father is. If they become fully persuaded of who the Father is, that's the, going to be the first step into their freedom. Because the other thing, the second thing that Jesus came to accomplish uh, is, a, is helping us to discover who we are. In John 17, 22, Jesus said, I have given you the same glory that the Father gave me, that you may be one as we are one. Now that word glory is the Greek word doxa, which could mean value, substance, definition, weight. You could also use the word identity in there. It would fit perfectly there. He said in John 17, 22, I've given you the same doxa as the Greek word, that the Father gave me, or the same identity that the Father gave me, which takes us all the way back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when the Trinity says, let us make mankind in our image. And it's the image that we lost. We lost the image of the Father, and that really needed to be restored, because without the image of the Father, we lose sight of the blueprint of our own divine design. And so that was the first thing that Jesus had to restore to us is an accurate image of who the Father is because when he restores an accurate image of who the Father is, simultaneously he restores to us the blueprint of our own divine design. So as we see the Father revealed, we simultaneously discover, rediscover who we truly are, which is beautiful, which then enables the second part of John 17, 22 to happen, which is that you may be one, as we are one. Inadequacy always produces separation. The belief that you're not enough in some way will always lead you to isolation. So with your beautiful uh, picture here of, what was your name again? Adam, Adam standing naked behind the pillar. Beautiful, Adam. <laughs> well done. So when Adam was over here, he was in a place of isolation. That's exactly the place that we go. Whenever we are convinced that we're not enough in any way. It doesn't matter what the excuse is. Uh, Joanna had a whole lifetime of reasons that she pulled out of why she wasn't enough. And every one of those reasons drove her into a deeper level of isolation. And everything that we've been through in our life that causes us to believe that we're inadequate in any way drives us into isolation. Like Adam and Eve, they, after the, you know, that, the fall, that dr- they were driven into isolation. So the moment you believe you're inadequate, 
Inadequacy becomes the platform for shame. And that becomes the platform for condemnation. And that becomes the platform for self-hatred. And that becomes the engine that drives us relentlessly into isolation. And that's why vulnerability is so terrifying for us. So when God comes completely vulnerable, completely transparent, uh, longing for vulnerability and intimacy, a genuine mutual vulnerability and mutual intimacy, we are terrified because we don't want anyone to see what we see, which is the root that whatever it is, it's, it's the engine driving our belief in our own inadequacy. So we run and hide. And so in this process of being peacemakers, right, if we're peacemakers, we are destroying the authority attached to chaos. So there's two lies that we've got to really go after as peacemakers. Get your peacemakers out. Uh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. So you need your peacemakers to destroy chaos. And the chaos that you have to destroy is the conviction that people have uh, that God isn't perfect, you know, that, that he's less than a perfect expression of love. So, oh yeah, that peacemaker, get that action out. So, what happens, right, when we destroy the authority attached to chaos, when we destroy those two lies that people believe about a false image of the Father, when an authentic image of who the Father truly is is restored to a person, and when a person becomes fully persuaded of their own perfection. That's right, when you become fully persuaded of your own perfection, that God made you in His image and He did a perfect job. When you become persuaded of that, you'll actually effortlessly be able to step back into the, the end of John 17, 22, which is that they may be one as we are one. So shalom, the picture of shalom is everything, absolutely everything functioning according to divine design. And the best picture that we have of that is the fellowship of the Trinity. Now, in the context of the fellowship of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit try really, really, really hard to get along. And they invite us into the struggle of fellowship. No, hang on. No, we better back that up. How, this is kind of interesting. For the Trinity, their default setting is unity. For the Trinity, their default setting is effortless divine union. For the Trinity, their default setting is effortless oneness, effortless participating in perfect love and sharing perfect love effortlessly among each other. Now, this is what happens as we go on a journey into our sonship, as we go on a journey into shalom, as we destroy the authority attached to chaos, is all our default settings get rearranged and, get de and our default settings get put back to the way they were. With the way they were designed, they come back into alignment with the divine design, the divine blueprint for our lives. And when our default settings get put back into divine alignment, when they come back into shalom, we participate as effortlessly as the Trinity in that fellowship of the Trinity. We participate effortlessly. You don't have to wake up in the morning and go, Oh God, I've got to try and receive your love today. <laughs> It becomes really hard to receive the love of God if your, if your default settings are messed up. And your default settings get messed up when you become convinced that you're less than perfect. Because the moment that you're convinced you're inadequate in any way, 
The moment that you think that you're inadequate in any, in any way whatsoever, it will lead to a platform of shame and condemnation and self-hatred and isolation. So you will become the genesis of your own separation. You'll become, you'll become the engine room, the driving force in your own isolation. But when your default settings get reset and come back into a divine alignment, participation in the fellowship of the Trinity becomes absolutely effortless. Receiving divine love, divine bliss, divine ecstasy becomes effortless. Expressing divine love becomes effortless. Loving your enemies becomes effortless, effortless if your default settings get reset. So, as peacemakers... Oh, right. Oh, did you see that? I got a shock from it. That was raw power. We get to go backwards. Yeah, I like that picture. Yes. And forwards. Shalom, we like that as well. So shalom, repeat after me, is everything functioning according to divine design. Excellent. And then it also means to destroy... The authority, the authority attached, attached to, chaos. to chaos. And we use our peacemakers, baby. <laughs> All right, we use our peacemakers to do that. So that was a good little uh, warm-up for you. So what we're going to do now is we, uh, I am going to try and create a little bit of chaos for fun. Is that all right? I th- you guys called it your church Joyland. So you've got my expectations really high that you're a little bit silly at least. I could probably give you a run for your money in terms of silliness. But um, I think what I need is I think, what do you reckon? I think we might need a, maybe one or two more. Oh, I don't know, maybe not. Maybe, Ali, if you kind of, oh, you just lean that way. No, you, you, you go on that side, Ali. You, you move over that side. Um, right, so you guys... From the pillar that way, you guys are one team and you guys are the other team, okay? So, uh, no, I've actually got a name for you already. You guys are the peacemakers. Okay, so say hello, peacemakers. Very good. And you guys are the accusers. All right. Okay, so I just want to just like get a So... Uh, so what I want to start with is I just want you guys to shout out. So you guys are the peacemakers, I want you to shout out peacemakers. You guys are accusers, I want you to shout out accusers. And I'm going to count to three and I want you to shout it out at the same time. You just shout out, you guys shout accusers, you guys shout peacemakers. And then when I point to you, alright, I want you to shout out peacemakers, accusers, and I just want to just get a little volume test, alright? Okay, so here we go, and count to three and you all shout out whatever you are. One, two, three. Okay, okay, we've got a good vibe going. All right, so uh, I'm going to read some scriptures out in a moment. And what I want you guys to do, if the scriptures are kind of celebrating being a peacemaker, all right, then I want you guys to be clapping and cheering, going, woohoo! If they're kind of like, uh, if, they're, if they're peacemaker scriptures, then you guys are going to boo, like, no! Nah! 
Okay? So anytime we're talking about, you feel free to shout out any time during the rest of the message. If there's something that's kind of like a peacemaker thing, you guys are clapping and cheering. And if it's peacemaker stuff, you guys are booing. If there's accusation, condemnation, you guys are cheering. You're like, wow, the crowd goes wild. And you guys are like, boo. Sound good? Yeah. All right. Excellent. All right. So um, now I just... Just as we get it, I just want to help describe these two audiences as well a little bit more so you understand it. So you guys are basically, your default setting is perpetual delight. Okay? (laughs) So there's basically nothing that could happen in the entire cosmos that could change your default setting of perpetual delight. All right? All right, and your... Your constant declaration to anyone that you come into contact with is that you constantly declare their perfection and inclusion in the Trinity. All right? Okay? So that's, you, you, that's just what you guys, it's just you're like a stuck, broken record. All you do is declare people that they're perfectly made in the image of God. Uh, sweet. Okay. And then you guys, um, you guys are just perpetually angry. All right? Your default setting is uh, just that, that it flows effortlessly out of your overwhelming sense of inadequacy. Um, you have the sense of hatred for other people because they make you feel inadequate, but that manifests as pure anger, basically. Okay, so that's what you do all the time. And your constant declaration as the accusers, you're just constantly declaring to people that they're inadequate. You'll use all sorts of descriptive language, some of which can't be mentioned here. Um, to declare how inadequate people are and how separated and distant from God they are. Yeah, all right? So you guys can be creative in in that. But that's just to set the scene of kind of help you understand the nature of who you guys are. And I'm going to read, first of all, from Matthew chapter (laughs) 5. And I think I'll probably get a bad reaction from this one as well. But I will start, um, I'll read to you from the Passion Translation. All right. What happiness comes to you when you feel your spiritual poverty? For theirs is the realm of heaven's kingdom. What, What delight comes to you when you wait upon the Lord? For you will find what you long for. What blessing comes to you when gentleness lives in you, for you will inherit the earth. How enriched you are when you crave righteousness, for you will be surrounded with fruitfulness. How satisfied you are when you demonstrate tender mercy, for tender mercy will be demonstrated to you. Wait for this one. Wait, we just need to wait for this one for your response. I just want to build up for this. But what bliss you experience when your heart is pure. Then your eyes will be open to see more and more of God. How joyful you are when you make peace. For then you will be recognized as the sons of God. Good stuff. Hey, now... I got a question for you. Uh, would God ask us to do what he isn't willing to do? No. So one of the reasons it says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. One of the reasons it's making that identity statement is saying, because that's what he does. It's saying, if you're a peacemaker, 
If you're a peacemaker, you'll be, called a, you'll be called a son of God because you're following in the footsteps of your father because he's a peacemaker, which means he's out to destroy the authority attached to chaos and means he's out to bring everything in the whole world back into alignment with divine design so everyone can effortlessly participate in the beautiful fellowship of the Trinity. All right, all right, we've got another scripture here. We're going to uh, for, verse 43 in the same chapter, 3 to 48. Your ancestors have also been taught, love your neighbors and hate the one who hates you. I'll just read that again. Love your neighbors and hate the one who hates you. However, I say to you, love your enemy. And bless the one who curses you. Do something wonderful. I just, I want you to hear this so that, I want you to hear this so that you can gauge your reaction appropriately. Do something wonderful for the one who hates you. And respond to the very ones who persecute you by praying for them. For that will, for that will reveal your identity. As children of your heavenly Father, He is kind to all by bringing the sunrise to warm and rainfall to refresh, whether a person does what is good or evil. What, you, what reward do you deserve if you only love the lovable? Don't even the tax collectors do that? How are you any different from others if you limit your kindness only to your friends? Don't even the ungodly do that? Since, since you are children of a perfect Father in heaven, you are to be perfect like Him. All right, we're going to Romans. Yeah, do it in your own strength. Yeah. Romans 5 verse 10. I'm going to read this out of the NIV. <laughs> Um, Romans 5 verse 10 says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through death, through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through death. Now, some people stutter and stumble when they're reading Bible verses and If you are one of those people, I don't know if you want to read this one because it could accidentally come out, for if while we were God's enemies. Don't do that. Don't do that. If you're speaking somewhere, especially as a guest, don't make that mistake. We're going to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5.18. I think you guys should be cheering. I love it. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, we're going to a big one. I'll really need to, I'll really need to make sure I read this straight from the scripture so I don't get this one confused because it's a hard one to remember. Are ready? John three sixteen to 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish 
Okay, shh, that word perish in the Greek is the word apolumi. Say apolumi. We're going to come back to that. So remember the context this is used, that they will not apolumi, but will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. All right. Now, when I press this button, it's going to go to the Shalom one. If I press it again, we should see a beautiful picture. Oh. Okay, so this is a picture from my book, The Good Father. And I would love to send everyone a free e-copy, a free copy of the e-book, The Good Father. And so I'm going to send all the details to Larry. And if Larry's got your email address, then he can send it on to you. If Larry doesn't have your email address... He can't send it to you. Boo. All right. So uh, this is the story from uh, Luke 15, the story of the lost son or the Apolumi son. And it's Luke 15 is all about Apolumi. So we just saw in Luke 3, uh, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not be lost, should not apolumi, okay? And then Luke 15 is the big apolumi chapter. It's Jesus' biggest apolumi moment where he talks about the apolumi sheep. He talks about the apolumi coin. And he talks about the apolumi son. All right, so praise him. All right, so it starts out. The son does something that's absolutely terrible when he asks for the inheritance from his father before his father's done. He's basically, uh, he's saying to, to not just his dad, but to the whole community, you know what, dad, I don't care if you, I, you, it means nothing to me if you're alive or dead. All I want from you is my money. And doing that in the, the context of the Jewish culture, uh, you know, if you, you know, honor your father and mother so that all may go well with you, or also so that you don't get stoned to death. <laughs> you remember that bit? Yeah, so what he did was worthy of a death penalty. So it's a kind of a big deal. And everyone would have, you know, corporate justice, communal justice, everyone else would have been ready to stone him. So Jesus, remember, Jesus told this story to a crowd of people, right? The crowd of people were hearing Jesus tell this story, and when they hear the story, they're anticipating that the Father is going to then initiate justice, right? And for the crowd, what does justice look like? Yeah. looks like the, st- the son being stoned to death. And when the Father fails to stone the son to get to death, all of a sudden the people that are hearing Jesus tell the story, all of a sudden he's now telling the story with two villains, because when they're hearing this story, here, they are perceiving the father as a villain. Because he did not fulfill cultural protocol. He didn't fulfill cultural protocol. His son should have been stoned to death. Because that was one of the greatest forms of dishonoring your parents that you could come up with. And the whole community, both the people inside the story and the people listening to the story that Jesus is telling to it, they're all thinking, who is this ridiculous, insane father? He is a villain. So for the people listening, there's two villains. The father is a villain and the son is a villain. So he, the son hightails it. He's like, aha, he got on a noble steed. Say noble steed. Noble Excellent. Steed. Boom, he's off. He, and he didn't just run to the next county because people would have chased him down and stoned him to death. 
It says he didn't just like just cross over the border because they would have chased him down and stoned him to death. It said he went to a distant nation. He kept on going. He took his gold. He's like, woohoo! He got out of there before people could get him. He got out of there before justice could catch up with him. And he's off. And uh, so this is him with one of his prostitutes. And he's, uh, you can see his his booze bottle there. It's empty. He uh, He's having a bit of a hard time of it. Because he hates, he, oh, you're like this, he hates that prostitute. And you know why he hates this prostitute? He hates this prostitute. He actually, he actually hasn't fully processed it. Right? So he's having this emotion that he hates her, but he hasn't processed the subconscious emotions and feelings that are producing this seemingly irrational hatred that he has for this lady that he pays for lots of sex. He pays her for sex, but he can't, rationalize why he hates her because he hasn't processed really his feelings he doesn't do that all right he's too busy drinking like his rationale ah feelings of hatred and all these crazy emotional dysfunction sex and alcohol let me yeah you guys should be cheering more sex and alcohol (laughs) excellent so what is actually happening for him here is what he's actually realizing like subconsciously but not consciously is that the reason he hates this prostitute is because he reminds him of the fact that he believes this is the only way that he can get love, and that actually reminds him of the true belief that he has, that he believes he's so inadequate that he's not worthy of love at all. And that is actually the reason why he left his father in the first place, because even though he lived with his father his whole life, he had a misperception of the nature of his father, that came out of a misperception of who he was, that he wasn't adequate, that he wasn't good enough for the love of his own father. You're not good enough. And so because he believed that he wasn't good enough for the love of his own father, even though his father loved him, it caused him to hate his father. He hated his father because there he was living in the same house as his father, and his father never loved him according to his own perspective on reality, which wasn't, as we can see by the way the story goes, it wasn't based on reality. It was just his perspective of reality. But what he hated even more than his father was himself. Yeah. As, because he was the root of his own inadequacy. He was the cause. He was the real issue. And so what you see is inadequacy leads to condemnation, leads to shame, leads to hatred, leads to isolation. How far has he run from his father? To a distant nation. That's how far away he's run from his father. And his papa, he's a good papa. He's sitting at home late at night. Everyone else has gone to bed, but here he is sitting at home watching the dusty road, hoping that his son's going to come home. This is the best. I love it. So there he is waiting, longing for relationship, longing for reconciliation. There's no wrath here. There's no anger here. There is this deep longing for reconciliation with his son. That's what he really wants. That's what he's after. The son, he lost, he he ran out of money. And uh, he ran out of friends. And he was so addicted that he did crazy, crazy things. To order, to, in order to try and, he did desperate acts to try and uh, find ways to support his addictions to alcohol and sex. But eventually, he ran out of options, he ran out of friends, and everywhere he went, chaos followed. Yeah. 
And so he had no money, no friends, and here he is uh, quivering with his addiction. He, he is going through major withdrawals here as he hasn't had any alcohol, and he's, he's just burning up under the heat of the Middle Eastern sun. And this is the ugly bearded boss. Say ugly. Bearded boss. So that's the pig farmer. He just kicks him, wakes him up, and he gives him a job offer, which wasn't all he really is thinking. He's like, this guy can be my slave, and he doesn't look in good shape, but if he dies, it doesn't matter. He can be pig food. Win-win. Anyway, eventually he gets over that. He thinks, I'll be better off if I go back to my father. At least I can be a slave. Maybe, maybe, maybe... Maybe I can be a slave, but he also knows that if he goes back, everyone wants to kill him. Yeah. So he's kind of thinking, it's, it took him a long time to come to this point of actually leaving. It took to the point of desperation where there was literally no food. The whole nation was in famine. He was either going to die there, so he thought, die of starvation, or I could have a seemingly reasonably, comparatively quick death compared to starvation. I could get stoned to death, and there's a chance that my dad might, might take me back as a servant. We'll see. Someone recognizes him on the way back. This is his mate, he, you know, one of his neighbors. He recognizes him. Oh, my gosh, as he's getting closer to home. And he goes and tells everyone, uh-oh, that guy has come back. The Apolumi son has come back. We've got to kill him. Yeah. And uh, so everyone's like, wow, we've got to get him. Now, look, here's all your buddies. Yeah. Here's all your buddies. Yeah. These guys all want him dead. So here, these guys... These guys, right here you've got a picture of transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In John 1.29, John the Baptist says something that was one of the most reformational statements in world history. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the cosmos. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the cosmos. Now to these people hearing John the Baptist... Because they were the same people that heard John the Baptist. Same crowd, actually. Oh, look. I've accidentally... Oh, look. I accidentally drew on here. But did you see that? But do you know what that... Boom, 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 boom. There we go. Oh, oh. I was just trying to... There we go. What I was trying to do is effects from the sniper. You can't see him. Anyway, he's taken out a couple of the crowd. He's just a guy that was like, Oh, don't get him. Anyway... He's not part of the actual story, but you can see that he has landed a few good hits. Yeah. He's got a peacemaker. Yeah, he's got a peacemaker. <laughs> so, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the cosmos. That's such a reformational statement, and it's supposed to transition us from Old Testament thinking to New Testament thinking around a sacrifice. So when he says the Lamb of God, he's obviously talking about a sin offering, a sacrifice for sin. That's what you know, he's talking about. When he says the Lamb, it's sacrificial language. But what is crazy, so everyone that heard John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the cosmos, would have thought that he was absolutely ridiculous, like crazy bonkers, but most of them probably wouldn't have even caught a little bit of it. it was so outrageous that it would have just gone way over the head because for the entire time that they've had the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, which was not God's plan A, remember? On Mount Sinai, God invites them to be a kingdom of priests and they say, no, we don't want intimacy. We want to do it on our own. We want religion. He's like, you really want religion? All right, here you go. Here's a real nasty dose of religion. Hopefully you get so sick of it that you actually come back to plan A, which is 
a kingdom of priests, which is intimacy and dominion, which is, you know, you're stepping back into your sonship, that place of intimacy and dominion. So that's what he's really hoping for. He's like, okay, you don't want sonship, you don't want intimacy and dominion, don't want to be a kingdom of priests, then eat this really yucky burger, and hopefully after that, you'll come back to me and want the good stuff. So that's what the propitiatory (laughs) sacrificial system of the Old Testament was all about. It wasn't God's plan A. And, but here's the thing with that, is every time they sacrificed, it, didn't, it never took away any sin. It didn't take away one sin. In fact, if you read Hebrews, the author of Hebrews calls that the sacrificial, sacrificial system of the old covenant weak and useless. Oh my gosh, the Bible itself calls the old covenant sacrificial system absolutely useless. We like the old covenant. Yeah. yeah. There you go. So John the Baptist is prophesying that this lamb is going to take away sin. So first of all, they have no concept for a sacrifice that takes away even one sin. They didn't get that. They never had that. that. Can you imagine that concept of all these religious-minded people that have only thought the same way for centuries and only done the same thing for centuries. They've only ever thought that. No one's ever challenged that mindset. There's been no other, no other way of thinking for centuries, but this one way, which is uh, we do these sacrifices and they don't take away any sin and we just live in the suffering of it. Yeah. And so there's, here's John the Baptist saying, not only is this going to take away once and it's going to do more than that, it's going to take away the sin of the entire cosmos. So he is transitioning from old covenant to new covenant, where the old covenant was a propitiatory system where, uh, let me explain this. Right, now we're going to, who's got something that is, they've, you know, it's not very valuable. They've got something here, it's not very valuable, but they've got, they've got it. That's not very valuable? No. Huh? Yeah, take this. That's not so valuable. <laughs> Oh, I'll take a cup. That's look, yeah, that looks less valuable. Is that valuable. empty? Almost. <laughs> Does it need to be empty? should be empty. Is that empty? I'll take that one. Oh, this one looks good. This one looks worthless. It's perfect. All right, so let's just say I took this, and I was like, Dutch bros, stuff Dutch bros, and stuff at them. I was like, I'm sick of it, Adam. Every time we come to church, you get naked. And that pole doesn't hide anything. And the camera is behind the pole anyway. And I know that Robin's sick of seeing your behind. And that pole needs to be cleaned more than it is. (laughs) All right, so I'm pretty offended with him. I throw stuff at him and I create some type of offense, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, Oh, yeah, I'll take those as well. Say, say, say escalation. Say escalation. Fantastic. That's exactly what I needed. I needed to escalate this. I needed more emotions. I needed more engagement. That's still good, by the way. That is still good. And I'm sure we've got vacuum cleaners in New Zealand. You guys have had them here? You call them, what do you call them here? Huh? Hoovers? Cleaners, tweezers. All right. Anyway, I've got a flight to catch very soon. 
So we'll get we'll get our tweezers out in a moment. But for now, look at this escalation. Yeah! <laughs> in the Old Testament, if someone did something as heinous as this, which this, by the way, is totally inappropriate. Like, never do this, especially if it's the first time you've ever met someone, and you've yeah. Never do this, okay? Just a word of good. Never, ever do this. But if you want to eat some of these, welcome. Kids, come over here, grab a seat. Um, so now I've created a serious issue, all right? Who initiated the offense here? Should be quite clear. You're pointing at Adam? <laughs> oh, me. Okay, so who initiated the chaos? Who initiated the offense? Me, right? Okay, pretty blatant. Like, that was all me. I initiated the offense, all right? This is terrible. But um, for my wife, who will be like, what the heck did you do? Uh, I need to take a photo of this. Here we go. Uh, yeah, so in the old way of thinking, in the Old Testament way of thinking, in the way of propitiation, what would happen now is... The only way in the propitiatory way of things to reconcile is for me to, or you guys going to have to help me out. Like, what could I possibly do that could reconcile this? One, I think I'm probably going to have to clean everything up. Eat all the pretzels. I'm going to have to clean everything up. I'm going to have to buy him probably not just one bag, but probably, you know, because he can sue for emotional damages, right? (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to have to not take just one bag of pretzels back to him, probably sevenfold restoration, and then I'm going to have to crawl back to him and beg forgiveness and give him... Huh? There you go. All right? So his demand of what it's going to take to propitiate him or to annul the offense, to get rid of the offense, his demand is seven times 70. That's what he's demanding of me. So he, in the Old Testament way of thinking, the propitiatory way of thinking, he gets to sit back there and kind of like be offended and be like, huh, well, he better come and say sorry for what he's done. I am not happy. All right? Seriously offended. And he's waiting for me to come crawling back and beg forgiveness to initiate the reconciliation. So here, this is really important to understand about how propitiation works. This is what defines propitiation. A propitiatory action is when the person who initiated the offense, who was? Yes, me. I actually really enjoyed it. I, yeah, that's a totally different story. So... Uh, so the one that initiated the offense initiates the reconciliation. Right. right Now, the entire Old Testament sacrificial system is based on that model. Whoever initiates the offense initiates the reconciliation. Now, what John the Baptist prophesied was the end of that model and the beginning of a brand new model, which is expiation. Now, expiation would look more like this. (laughs) No more examples, please. We're not kinesthetic learners. Expiation would look more like this. These guys here represent propitiation. They want payment in blood. They're demanding justice. Uh, They are demanding justice. And for them, justice looks like punishment. So 
anyone who's still got a propitiatory mindset is thinking, this guy, revoke his visa immediately. Make America great again. Like, this is not helping America. Okay? This is not helping America right here. So they're thinking, right, we need justice, and justice looks like punishment. (laughs) The father, the good father, now remember this father here, uh, he is a villain in the eyes of in the eyes of the crowd. This father here is a villain because he is he is rejecting all the cultural protocol and the cultural protocol of propitiation demands punishment and everyone who is all about propitiation and that Old Testament mindset hates the new father hates the sorry hates the good father because the good father is endorsing expiation. And they think, what? You've lost it. And so they think this father is completely immoral. He's as much of a villain as the son because he is not embracing the cultural protocol of justice which demands punishment. So the, the father in this story is modeling expiation. And expiation is a totally different minds it. Expiation looks like the son, in this context, the son is the one who's initiated the offense, right? Nearly as bad as mine, but not quite. <laughs> so the father is now running to the son, and the son has every reason why he's inadequate, why he's not good enough, and the father ignores everything and runs to him, and these guys are expecting a stoning to death, and the father, he just this is all the son gets. There's no, there's no lecture as he just gets wrapped up in arms of unconditional love. A little bit more cheering on this side. A little bit more cheering on this side. Way more heckling on this side. So the father just wraps him up and gives him a pretzel. All right. So here's how this, oh, nice broom. Here's how this gets really confusing for us reading a New Testament Bible is because in the Greek, there's three different words that mean atonement, all right? And what we see, what we're seeing here in this picture here, this is a picture of atonement. This is a picture of expiation. So expiation, just to clarify, Who initiated the offense? And now, in propitiation, I'm the one that initiates the reconciliation, right? Now, expiation, I initiate the offense, but he initiates the reconciliation. (laughs) I'll just take a hug. loving. That's good loving. So that's, that's the difference, okay? Is that a big difference or a little difference between those two mindsets? So that's what John the Baptist was prophesying. He's prophesying the end of propitiation because propitiation takes away nothing. But expiation takes away, and the word takes away is what expiation means. So you could use expiate there. Behold the Lamb of God who expiates 
the sin of the cosmos. The word expiate means to take away, to cancel, to annul, uh, to put to death, make irrelevant. It's like as though it never happened. All right. So that, that's the father. He's make, making, he's reconciling as though nothing has happened. Beautiful. It gets confusing in the New Testament when we read the New Testament because most of the people who translated the New Testament didn't get what John the Baptist was prophesying, that it was the end of propitiation and the beginning of expiation. And one of the reasons why it's confusing is because there's three Greek words for atonement, which are helisterion, helasmos, and heliskomai. Helisterion, helasmos, and heliskomai. And they... They all, mean, <laughs> they all mean atonement, so they can accurately be translated as atonement, but they can also mean propitiation, or they can mean expiation, all right? So if we're going to translate those words hilasterion, hilasmos, and hiloskomai, uh, they can be translated accurately as propitiation or expiation, but it's the context that dictates whether or not they need to be translated translated propitiate or expiate. You tracking with me? Okay, so here's how we decide with, if, if hilasterion, hilasmos, and hiloskomai need to be translated as propitiation or expiation. You just look at the context because the word won't tell you. It's the context that tells you. So in the story of the good father, was the son, uh, did the, the son propitiate the father or did the father expiate the son? Now, here's something amazing, because this story of the lost son or the good father is in perfect harmony with the story on the cross. Everything about the cross is in perfect harmony with the story of the good father. All the scriptures that we read out before about being a peacemaker, a peacemaker is a person with with an expiatory nature. They go out and they make... Terrible, terrible situations like this, they're completely forgiven. And they're left with the Father to clean up. Praise Him. (laughs) While we were still God's enemies, not enema, while we were still God's enemies, God reconciled us to Himself. That's what's happening right here. That's what's happening on the cross. This is the story of the whole New Testament. There is not one single moment where propitiation is endorsed by Jesus in the New Testament. Propitiation was what was given at Mount Sinai to make people sick of religion so they'd come back to the Father and step back into their sonship. But expiation is a totally different dynamic. So, whenever... So Jesus is a sin offering, right? He was a sin offering. He did pay a price for our freedom from sin. But did he have to propitiate the Father? He didn't have... Was the Father in this place of the fact that humanity having a bad day changed the default settings of the divine nature? Jesus never had to satisfy the wrath of an angry God. That's in a song, but it's not in the Bible. There wasn't one bit of Jesus' atonement that was about satisfying the wrath of an angry God or about changing the default settings 
of the divine nature as though somehow the fall of humanity changed the, the core nature of God. Everything about the New Testament is expiatory. Here's how that plays out for us. I'll just I'll make a couple of statements and then I'm just going to close. But propitiation, right? If we view the cross as, propi- as propitiation, as, a, as propitiatory, then what we're saying is Jesus is a sacrifice that changed God. Theologians who believe that also have another saying. They say, in the irony of the gospel, God saves us from God. That's the theological ramifications of when you believe in propitiation, that Jesus had to somehow rescue us from God, that uh, the, the atonement on the cross was propitiatory. It had to change the nature of God and save humanity from God. Yes, if we understand yeah. expiation, we understand that Jesus was an atoning sacrifice, but he was an atonement that revealed the Father. He was a sacrifice that revealed the Father. Because yeah. what we see on, when, we see, when we see the cross through the lens of expiation, this is what we see on the cross. This is the picture that we see on the cross, is that everything that you ever thought stood in the way, everything that you ever thought was an excuse to endorse inadequacy, that was an excuse to endorse separation and disconnection, oh, yes, a hole in the Father's hand, that was beautiful, theological, genius. When we understand expiation, we understand that the cross, uh, on the cross, Jesus is a sacrifice that reveals the Father. And we understand that on the cross, God is not saving us from God, but God is saving us from ourselves. And God is saving us from, here's how God is destroying the chaos in our lives on the cross, because the cross becomes the greatest revelation of the nature of love that humanity has ever seen. And when we see the greatest revelation of love manifest in the Trinity on the cross, we simultaneously see the greatest revelation of who we truly are. And when we see those two truths, the revelation of the Father, the revelation of our identity, that's the truth that sets us free. So if we take this back to the moment... If we take this back to... The moment in my office when Joanna was there weeping in February last year. She's weeping. She's, uh, she's about to start our ministry training school. And she's just telling me uh, like 10 days ago she had lesbian sex. She's been doing drugs. And a week ago she had a wire around her neck and she was about to commit suicide. And she's not good enough to be here at this training school. As a peacemaker, I have a resolute declaration in my heart that refuses to endorse any sense of inadequacy that she's presenting. And instead of that, she gets met with a constant, unyielding declaration of the present reality of who she already is, that she is made in the image of her Father in heaven. The biggest thing that made me resist embracing this in my own theology was a belief that To say that I'm perfect 
or to say that I'm wonderful, like Psalm, 100, uh, Psalm 114, 113, verse 14. Uh, I'm wonderfully, I made, you know, we're all wonderful, made wonderfully in the image of God. That verse has turned to mush in my brain. Yeah, 139, verse 14. All your works are wonderful. So to, agree, I couldn't agree with that because I was like, what, could I go and get a shirt that says I'm wonderful and wear it all around? Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know about in America, but in New Zealand, people would be like, arrogant, like, who are you? And you definitely wouldn't wear it in church. <laughs> but then God told me, he said, actually, humility is simply to agree with me. And I was like, whoa, because I thought it was pride and arrogance to endorse my own perfection, to agree with that, to stay that, to, to get in front of people and say, you know what, I'm perfectly made in the image of God. It's not what I've done, but it's what he's done. He's done a perfect job, and that's what defines me as perfect. Love it. <laughs> I couldn't agree with that concept until God helped me understand that humility is simply to agree with him. Pride, the real pride issue is refusing to agree with who God says you are and allowing a lie to trump his perspective of your identity. And so in that moment, I came to this like, wow, humility is being able to agree with who God says I am. And that actually helped me too, because like, not only did it cause a massive acceleration in my own transformation, but it helped me to come into this place where I would be happy. Instead of prophesying over the world that they're sinners and they're this and they're that, and that prophesying in a sense of inadequacy and prophesying false identities over the world, that only fuels their sense of inadequacy, shame, condemnation, self-hatred, and ultimately isolation. The church, when we tell the world they're sinners, we actually become the engine that drives them into separation from God. We endorse their inadequacy that fuels isolation and launches them into disconnection from God. So that changed everything. And so Joanna sitting there, instead of me having to tell her how bad she was, I could just begin to prophesy over her the present reality of her identity. I could say what uh, Paul was saying in Acts 17, uh, 27 to 28, when he's speaking to the Athenians who are sin-loving, demon-worshipping, blood-sacrificing, unrepentant <laughs> sinners... And he prophesies over them, he says, in him we live and move and have our being. We are all his children. And he's prophesying over them in the midst of their darkness, the present reality of their identity, which is what Jesus said in John 17, 22, I have given you, past tense, the same glory, the same identity that the Father gave me, that you may be one as we are one. All right. So that's... Uh, that's the close, basically. As, as we go from here, we go as, we go as peacemakers. As peacemakers are people who destroy the authority attached to chaos by destroying the lie that endorses inadequacy. Amen. Oh, you want to go? Oh, you want to go? Yeah, yeah. Close no, no, back. No, no, I, just, I just turned the light green so people can ask questions, but we only have one mic. Anyway, we should definitely go back here. <laughs> Let me pray for us, and then we can do the questions, but just open your heart wide right now. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're like a heat seeker missile and you sniff out lies no, no matter where they're hiding. And Jesus, I just thank you that right now you would expose the lies that we're believing about our Father in heaven. 
that you would bring revelation like a flood right now, that you would bring revelation like rain, like a flood, like a fire, like a furnace, like a hurricane, that it would wash right through our entire being and bring revelation and conviction and understanding of who our Father in heaven truly is. And Holy Spirit, I thank you right now as well, just for, uh, just for going right through us like an antivirus and exposing every lie that endorses inadequacy. Holy Spirit, I thank you right now for revelation that actually uh, it puts to death every word of accusation that has ever come against us. And Jesus, right now, I declare the power of your blood that breaks every accusation. It puts to death every accusation. So I declare that right now in the name of Jesus for every person that's feeling that sense of inadequacy, feeling that uh, feeling that sense of, yeah, that inadequacy and that sense of accusation that's been tracking you your whole life. Right now, in the name of Jesus, I declare that the power of the blood of Jesus cancels, it expiates, it annuls, it puts to death, it destroys every curse and every accusation in your name, Jesus. So I declare a breaking off right now by the power of your blood, every curse and every accusation and every false identity in the name of Jesus. I declare Hebrews 12, 24, that the blood speaks a better word. I declare over every person here right now, and it's release a spirit of wisdom and revelation. I declare over you, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, that the blood speaks a better word, and it prophesies over you your perfection. It prophesies over you your sonship. It prophesies over you your destiny. I release the power of the blood, that the sound of the blood would resonate here like never before to cancel, destroy, expiate, annihilate every curse and accusation, and leave a powerful impartation of the better word that prophesies your perfection, that prophesies your sonship, that prophesies made in the image of God, that prophesies your destiny in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Beautiful. First question, who's going to tidy up the pretzels? <laughs> See ya, peacemaker. Yeah. All right, anybody got any questions they want to ask? Yep. So you were re- referring to the uh, propitiation word. That's really Old Testament. So when we see propitiation in the New Testament, are you saying, that, are you saying that's a mistranslation? Then? Absolutely. There's three words in the New Testament that can be translated generally as atonement or propitiation or expiation or mercy seat. So the hilasterion, hilasmos, and hiloskomai. Those are the three words. And you have to look at the context of what it's describing in order to understand what to translate it as. One of the best examples of that is the book of Hebrews, which the book of Hebrews picks up on what John prophesied uh, the, he, the book of Hebrews picks up on the transition from propitiation to expiation, and the whole book of Hebrews is a contrast between uh, propitiation and expiation, except the translators never translated, the, never translated it right. So you see the book of Hebrews becomes a, a contrast between propitiation and propitiation, which results in confusion. Because what's the point of a book that compares propitiation with propitiation? Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be a book that's contrasting the old with the new, Mount, uh, uh, Mount Sinai with Mount Zion, um, 
and propitiation with expiation, but they didn't they didn't translate it right because their whole mindset was he's a god of wrath, right? So they never transitioned from a god of wrath, which is like a, an image of God initiated by Augustine and that consumed the church. So in a sentence, Jesus came because. Jesus came because our two major issues, right? Our two major issues were, get ready for it, we lost sight of who the Father was, and as a result of losing sight of who the Father was, we lost sight of our own identity. Now this was something that took place before the fall, all right? What? Yeah, we fell before we fell. So Mm. if you look at your own life, you fell before you fell. Anytime you've had a failure in your own life, trace it back and see whether or not the big cataclysmic moment of failure actually began when you believed a lie about yourself that resulted in you doing something really, really bad or dumb. Every time, because it's a, fr- a, a root produces a fruit, so the, the root is always a lie. That's the chaos comes from the, the lie. The fruit is the behavior that's produced by the lie that we believe. So beliefs produce behaviors. And if you see, this, I'll try and do this real quick, but Genesis 3, we have the fall where Satan comes to Adam and Eve and tempts them, right? And they fall. Jesus parallels the fall in Genesis 3 in Matthew 4 after he's been in the wilderness for 40 days. It's a direct parallel with the fall, right? The fall shows what it looks like when we live with our false identity and when we live with a misperception of the Father. Adam and Eve were not in a place where they fully understood their identity, where they fully understood the Father. All right? Something happened that resulted in them coming to a false perception of who they are. If they didn't have a lie in their belief system, if they didn't have the root, they wouldn't have the fruit. Okay? So, but they did, and that caused them, boom, to easily fall. Now, Jesus then demonstrates what it looks like for us when we live in our sonship. When we live with the revelation of who we truly are, that it doesn't matter what the enemy does, that we always live in victory. Yeah. So Jesus had to save us from ourselves, and he always has. Some people say, oh, well, after the fall, God was like quite ticked off, and because of his holiness, there was separation between God and man, and Jesus at the cross saved us. Yay! But uh, those people actually didn't read the Old Testament which is a story about extreme intimacy with humanity and divinity right through. Uh, That whole concept that sin produced separation from God and that that's what Jesus was sorting out is the most laughable theological concept I've ever heard. Because the entire Old Testament is a story of humanity's extreme intimacy with God. And you have like the average story in the Old Testament of intimacy far supersedes most New Testament believers today of their intimacy with God. Moses, oh yeah, face to face with God, yeah, like I hang out with God and I come out like glowing and stuff. And then, oh yeah, one day, 70 of the elders and me, we all went to heaven and we had this feast, it was pretty sweet. And then Enoch walks with God for 300 years, straight after the fall, he like knew those guys as well. He's like, oh, shame that you guys have got bummer intimacy, what's going on with you? Like, I've got awesome intimacy, what's your problem? And the pro- what was different about Enoch and Adam, their, their image of the father. It's, a, this, it's told in the, it's, the picture is seen in the story of the lost son. What was the issue for all humanity? The issue for humanity, like separation was, 
an illusion. Separation has always been an illusion. The only thing that separated, the only thing that has the ability to separate you from God is your own belief system. And that's why Paul, like that's how Paul carried on the New Testament. He prophesies over the people in, you know, uh, you know, in Arapagos, he, he just tells them the present reality is that you're as innocent can be. You're as son as a son can be. You're as loved as love can be. You don't have to do anything about it, but the people that did respond, that actually came into agreement with it, stepped into the participation. So if you want to, you can refuse to agree with your inclusion in the Trinity, but you won't have any fun. <laughs> if you wake up, and if your faith comes into alignment and agreement with the present reality of your sonship, the present reality of your inclusion, then you will get to participate in the beauty and the wonder of the fellowship of the Trinity. And what happens when you change your beliefs, you change your default settings. So intimacy becomes effortless. Ecstasy becomes effortless. Receiving divine love becomes effortless. And so the secret to effortless bliss is hard work. What? Yeah, the secret to effortless bliss... The secret to effortless bliss is a renewed mind. But people think that you'll get a renewed mind just by like, watching porn. Sorry, it doesn't work like that. You know, like, look, there's so many Christians and pastors addicted to porn, and they're like, oh, I really struggle to connect with God. <laughs> well, you're actually as in as in can be. You're as loved as love can be. You're as son as a son can be. And the disconnection isn't coming from God hating you. The disconnection is coming from the fact that you've got an unrenewed mind which still believes in separation. But the hard work comes when we actually set our alarm clock and go, right, stuff it. I'm going to spend some time with Jesus and in that presence, in his presence, my mind's going to be effortlessly renewed. In his presence, as I read the word, as I fellowship with him, my mind will be renewed. So the hard work is actually prioritizing your time to have time with the Lord. And if you prioritize your time to have time with the Lord, you will create momentum in the process of renewing your mind and becoming who you already are. And that renewing of your mind will change all your default settings. So everything then becomes effortless. So the secret to effortless bliss is hard work. Go renew your mind. And then as a result of renewing your mind, you can have effortless bliss, effortless ecstasy, effortless union, effortlessly receive divine love, effortlessly express divine love. Excellent. Here you go. That's really awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, give him thanks. If you only knew. Can I? I, Let me just say. um, I'll just give you one little reason why I destroyed the pretzels. It's because I spend most of my time teaching and training, Mm -hmm. and I know that 90% of what I say is forgotten within a day or so. And if I can somehow find a way to create some emotional engagement in the room, <laughs> the, the words that I speak will be welded to that emotional experience. And so that $3 bag of pretzels there uh, will actually empower people to connect the words for a long time to come. Amen. Amen. Amen.